Hello and welcome back to The Ties That Find. I'm your host, Rachel, and this is a true crime podcast that tells stories of long investigated mysteries that are solved using forensic genealogy. As a disclaimer, I am in no way affiliated with or sponsored by GenMatch, Parabon Nanolabs, or the DNA Doe Project. For the 15 years from 1991 to 2006, a single man stalked, terrorized, raped, and robbed over 10 women in the Sacramento area. But it was not until 2018 that the victims of these attacks will get the call that they had been waiting so long for. We got the guy. This is the case of the NorCal Rapist Victims. Hello, happy Wednesday. Welcome back. How did you like our John Doe from this weekend? Um, I really thought it was an interesting case. The way people just go off and they find to, they decide to live their own, some different life that's not the norm that society expects them to live. Um, and it's really sad with him because we're not really sure that he did it, that he wanted to. Or maybe it was just um, a way for him to live the basic life so he could, you know, at least fend for himself in that in that way. Maybe he um, grew to like it. Maybe he didn't. We don't know. But here we are. We find ourselves back to um, to a horrible, horrible crime that was committed multiple, multiple times against multiple, multiple women. And um, we do have another serial rape case. This is one one specific perpetrator. And uh, that's pretty much all I've got. I do have my DNA profile up in GEDmatch. And I did opt in, of course. So um, I'm just not sure if anybody is interested in me going over how it works. I haven't even looked into who my Scentsy Morgan matches are because I kind of already know. Um, but I do want to get a get an overview of it. I just have to find the time. You know, life, full-time job, podcast hobby, kids, husband. <laughs> um, but it'll, I'll get there one day. Maybe putting it out there just uh, gives me more accountability. In any case, here we go. This is the NorCal Rape victims. Now we are in Sacramento, California and the surrounding counties. Sacramento is kind of centered east-west-wise in California, but it is in the northern part of the state, hence the name that we're talking about here, the North California Rapist, NorCal. Sacramento is under two hours drive to San Francisco, but it's about eight and a half hours south to Los Angeles. Now, it's the capital of the state and the metro area, which is not just Sacramento, but also the surrounding urban areas, totals at about one and a half million people back in the mid 2000s. And not all of these victims are in this particular area, but that just gives you an idea of how packed this area is. And this guy has a type. He starts with white women and then soon enough, begins targeting young Asian women. And he has an MO. He stalks his victims beforehand just to be sure he can spend hours with them uninterrupted. And most often he's using or wearing some kind of ski mask or face mask. And there are times when victims do get a look at him and they describe him as white, 37 to 40 years old, and weighing between 200 and 250 pounds with a gut. Now he starts his terror spree in the summer of 1991 and the first four victims are actually farther east than Sacramento is. These populations are lower, but they range from like 30,000 to 100,000 at the time. Now, I'm not going to review all the details of all the victims because that's just too much for us, but we're going to go over a number of them, and all these details were given in their court testimonies just this last autumn. 
Victim number one was in Rohnert Park. This was June 22nd of 1991. Our victim is 21-year-old hairstylist, and she's fallen asleep on her couch in the living room of her condo where she lives alone. A man breaks in and tapes over her eyes and pulls her upstairs to her bedroom and then goes back outside to get a boombox. And then he tells her that the boombox is so they can listen to music together, like love songs, while they spend their time together. This is just freaking disgusting already. I don't like this at all. He tells her how tall her ex-boyfriend is. He tells her he knows where she works. And he tells her that he knows that she leaves her side door unlocked during the day while she is at work. He attacks her for five hours, rapes her three times, and he's kissing her as if this is a consensual encounter. He lays next to her like he's cuddling, and he tells her, quote, I'm sorry for doing this. I've never done this before, and I'll never do it again, I promise, unquote. Well, when he finally decides that he's done, he binds her wrists up and has her give him his ATM card and PIN number, and then he tells her not to try to escape until at least three songs have played on that boombox so it can give him enough time to steal her money. And as he left, he says, quote, you should lock your doors from now on. Someone might come in and try to hurt you. What a piece of shit this guy is right out the bat. Already I'm feeling like this is not his first attack. He's very in control. He's very comfortable with, with what he's doing to her. And he's not at all seeming to be scared that they're going to be interrupted. He's trying to make this out to be some kind of romantic encounter with all the kissing and the cuddling and the apology. I don't know. It just doesn't sound to me like this is his first rodeo. Now, victim number two is in Sonoma. It's not that far from Roanoke Park. He also attacks her in 1991. And then in early February 1992, he's over in Vallejo. Victim number three also lives alone, and she is also very aware of keeping herself as safe as possible because of this. She even locks her bedroom door at night. But on this night, she does hear something that wakes her up in her house, and so she actually does unlock the bedroom door and go out to investigate. And then, of course, there he is. A man is hiding behind her bedroom door, and he attacks. Her attack will last for about six hours. Now, she had tried to escape from the window right away, but he was able to pull her back and keep her inside. Now, this time he has a knife with him. But at some point, she decides she's going to defend herself from that knife that he's got. She's able to break off a piece of the tip of the knife while she's trying to grab it from him. And of course, she's cutting herself, but the tip is in her hand and she stabs him in the face with it. Now, it's not a deep stab, but she does leave a mark and draw blood. During the long hours of of this attack, this piece of shit, he'll come and go from the bedroom, rummage around the house. And later on, when he does leave, she will come across her address book. He had left it open to the page where her mother's address is. He wrote a pointed arrow to her mom's address and he wrote, don't call the cops. My God. But our Vallejo victim is a badass, just like Sonoma and Raynard Park. And she does call the police and report her attack. Then we come to Martinez, California, and this whole time he's been traveling southeast from his first victim. At this point, he's about an hour's drive from her. Now, this is Halloween night of 1996. We're going five years into the future since the beginning, and apparently he thinks this is a perfect time to get someone to answer the door, seeing as how he can now cover his face since it's Halloween. So he puts on a skeleton mask and just knock, 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 and he opens she comes to the door, thinks she's going to give out trick-or-treat candy, and he breaks in as soon as she opens the door. 
and then she begin, he begins the attack. Now, 20 days later, this piece of shit is going to call her on the phone to apologize. Don't worry, we'll get to that later. Again, later in 1996, he's in Woodland, California. Now, this is closer to Sacramento, much closer to Sacramento, actually, but we don't have any details about this case. January of 1997, we have victims number six and number seven at the same time. They are roommates. They are in Davis, California. Again, now we're outside of Sacramento, about a 20-minute drive. Our victims are students at University of California, and he has the same MO. He breaks in, terrorizes them, restrains them, and then rapes them for hours. Now, he is able to clean up the scene enough before leaving here, so they do report the rapes, of course, or we wouldn't hear about them, but they are not able to collect any DNA evidence from the scene. But we do have many of the same circumstances as in the other rapes, even though we don't have the DNA, so we feel very secure that he is the same guy in this attack as it was before. This is right in the middle of his rape spree from 1991 through 2006, as we'll find out later. And these are all young women, although he has transitions from white women to Asian women. He's wearing a mask. He carries them over his shoulder like a fireman when he takes them from room to room. And just like since the beginning, he's kissing them all over. It's disgusting. He's kissing the he's kissing the duct tape over their mouth. He's covering kisses all over their arms and their legs and everywhere else. And anywhere else he feels like while well, he's assaulting them. And the way he speaks to them is like in a really calm, soothing voice. It's just eerie. And it's the same kind of voice that are, is reported in other in the other rape cases. And of course, he's also demanding their ATM cards and PIN numbers. Then he binds them up with duct tape before he leaves. So he might have taken some extra time cleaning up this mess with them, but he definitely left enough signatures of his that the police are going to recognize him who he, for who he really is. Victim number eight is in Chico in July of 1997, also in the Sacramento area. He is assaulting a 21-year-old psych student who goes to Chico State University. Again, he breaks in her house while she's sleeping, ties her up, and the attack goes on just as it has in the past. Now, this victim did do an interview last December, just a few months ago, and she tells us about how she tried to fight him off. She'd been tied up, of course, just like as always, and he'd left the room and she got free. And then when he came back, he tied her up again, and then he left again, but she got free again. But her legs had actually been um, tied to the bed too, so she was free by her hands. And at this point, he did have his mask off as he's walking around the house and she was able to see his face. And she's a fighter and she tells him, listen, you better run. I'm going to get you. You better leave. And at first she thought he would, but then he starts coming after her. And now he's grabbing her, holding on to her, and she's struggling, And but she's able to grab a pair of scissors and she starts stabbing him. She tells us, quote, I didn't have it in me to kill him. I could have killed him, but I just didn't have it in me. So here we have not only his semen that's left behind, but also smatterings of blood from, from getting stabbed. But this, of course, does piss him off, and he becomes even rougher with her while he's raping her. <sighs> Jeez. Unfortunately, we're not done yet. Uh, victim number nine is in 2000, the year 2000. The only thing we know about this victim is she is 22, and she is also of Asian descent. This happens in Davis where he had been before with the two college students that were roommates. 
But then he decides he's going to wait a few years. So this is the last known attack, and this is an uh, attack on the two other roommates, uh, numbers 10 and number 11. This is on October 13th of 2006. Um, they are in North Natomas, N-A-T-O-M-A-S, and this attack is going to get him 12 charges against him total, just in, just in itself. Now, this is just a side note, but I'm researching all these these um, cases, and I'm seeing very strong similarities to that Netflix uh, miniseries. I think it was called Unbelievable. I think it might have been released in 18 or 19. Uh, if you haven't seen it, it's very good. It's, of course, very dark and depressing, but it's also very good. There's a lot of things that happen in that show that are very similar to what we see here in these cases. But one particular victim in the series is a, a girl that com- is just coming out of foster care and she's actually just 18. And so she's essentially aging out of the foster care system and she gets a place of her own. And, you know, she's attacked late at night. She, somebody breaks into her apartment and, and attacks her. The thing is with her, though, is because she does have a troubled past, the police aren't believing her. You know, her just recent, you know, prior, you know, foster mother has doesn't believe her. And that's why it's called Unbelievable. But in the end, it is, does come to light that she, you know, she definitely was telling the truth. But one of the things that the rapist does is he's making sure that the victims are cleaning themselves off. So that he's not leaving any kind of DNA behind. So I don't think that it was particularly definitely coming out of the NorCal rapist case. But the NorCal rapist and the Golden State Killer are not the only serial rape perpetrators that are out there. And at this at this point, they know the DNA exists. So if they're going to have to get their rocks off, they're going to also make sure to try to clean up. But in any case, I thought it was a really good series. So you should check it out if you haven't yet. Again, it is dark and it is depressing, but it is very, very well done. Okay, so getting back to our victims in Sacramento in 2006. He does make sure they are washed off and free of his DNA, but I'm assuming that there are some kind of DNA left behind. One of these victims will read a statement in November of 2006, just a month later, and talking about her experience and her feelings. She actually does this in front of the the police department, and the press is there, and they get a picture of her. They don't get her name, but, but from what I could tell, they don't even show her picture. They just are there to listen to what she has to say. She is 24 and she is described as a petite Asian American woman. And just like we said, she's not named. But she does tell us, quote, even now I can still feel the barrel of the gun pushing against my head. All I could think about was that I just wanted the stranger to leave my house. The only place where I thought, or we all think, is the safest place on earth. She tells us that she carries pepper spray with her now. Not only that, but she's also sleeping with a stun gun every night, and she's going to do that until he's caught. At this point, the police have been able to link this asshole to nine prior attacks by his DNA. So at least we do have his DNA all locked together in CODIS's victim database. So if we have, if we can solve one, we can solve the rest. But at this point, we still have to wait another 13 years for that to happen. That doesn't mean that the police aren't trying. They, they do, in this case, get some, a security camera footage from a neighbor, and they're able to identify a white Toyota 4Runner driving by just around the time that the women say that he had left their apartment. So the police collect all the registered vehicle information in the area of owners of white 4Runners, 4Runners, I can't say it, and they start showing up at the houses of these owners. They go knocking on doors, and they're interviewing all of these owners on their list, 
and they rule them out when it's warranted. They collect tons of DNA from tons of owners. I think they had upwards of like 130 DNA samples that they were able to get just from this, just from this lead from this truck. But they're all ruled out by DNA in some way or another. Also, they're not swabbing everybody's DNA because they're also looking at the physical description or other characteristics about the person that makes them think, well, it's not him. We'll just let him go. Now, in this case with the two victims in Sacramento, they also have their ATM card stolen. And he uses his mask when he goes up to the ATM. So the surveillance camera at the bank at the ATM actually does show him at the ATM taking money and there is a screen grab from it and it's really freaky. I'll put it, I'll put it in the show notes on the website and I don't know, I don't know if I'm going to put on social media yet because I don't know, it's a little, it's too freaky for me, but apparently he's there at like seven o'clock in the morning taking money out and throughout all these years and all these attacks, he's also taking personal items from the houses of the victims whenever he feels like it. I forgot to mention that, but yeah, he's also stealing any knickknacks or whatever from them. And then to add insult to injury, he's also apologizing during these attacks. Let's let's not forget about that. So what is worse? A person who's happy to rape you or a person, a person who's nasty, a person who's angry, a person who's vicious, or a person who's crying about raping you while he's raping you. And then thinking about later, weeks later, and then calling you directly at your house to apologize for it. Do you really need to hear an apology two weeks after the fact, even though you still don't know who he is and he's still out on the streets? Okay, yes, we may all have been tormented with our cravings and our addictions and our quirks or whatever, but thankfully most of us are just prone to like coffee or chocolate or like my husband, video games, you know, we're not, we're not raping and we're not murdering, but are these apologies really sincere? This is not something I I find to be really sincere. I don't know when you're calling in a victim weeks after the fact, it doesn't sound to me like you're actually sincere because if you were, you wouldn't be raping the next person a year later. This is a sadistic son of a bitch, and I don't know if they're able to, but calling after the fact is definitely something that should be considered an aggravator when it comes to how his charges are worked. Now, while all the police agencies are working together, because like we said, they're, they're, they're comparing notes and they're realizing it's the same guy. He's just traveling from county to county. They also have to take into account that they have to stay on their particular case and what we have is in 2006, on right before the 10-year anniversary of the Halloween victim's assault, the Contra Costa District Attorney will file charges against the unknown John Doe, who is the owner of the DNA left behind at the scene of that attack. This is something that I'm sure you've heard about, but essentially we have DNA. We're not able to find out who it belongs to yet, but we know it's coming. We need to press charges before the statute of limitations run out. So we'll just press charges against the owner of the DNA evidence. And that's exactly what happens here. Now, sometime in 2018, I really didn't get any details about the timeline for the most recent investigation where the family tree comes into play. But the Sacramento County District Attorney, Anne-Marie Schubert, and Police Chief Daniel Hahn are working on the cases that are within their jurisdiction. They send out one of the samples for one of their victims to the lab to get that mitochondrial DNA profiling done, and they log it into the GEDmatch system. 
Now, pretty quickly, they find a strong centimorgan match and they're able to create a family tree. Now, if within 10 days, this is all going down once they have the DNA profile. This particular family member is about the same age or was about the same age and physical build as the victims that described him at the time. And he also did live in the area. Now, they look into him a bit more closely and they find out that he did own guns as well. And he owns the same kind of guns that the rapists, that the victims claim that he had been brandishing during the attacks. So they trail him, right? They're surveilling him. They're watching his house. They um, they grab some of his garbage out of his out of his garbage can, and they also get a discarded straw at some point, and they submit those to the lab for their DNA profiling and to match it against the rape kits that they're using. They are using the two rape kits from the victims in the Natomas attacks in um, October 2006, and lo and behold they have a match. Now they pick him up as he's actually walking into work at the University of California in Berkeley. And they take him to the station and they interrogate him for a while, of course, just like any other pickup in this this kind of case. And just like any other interrogation, they leave him alone with his thoughts by himself in the room from time to time. Now surveillance video is going to show Multiple times while he was by himself, he tried to use the strings of his hoodie to hang himself from the door of the interrogation room. Now, that sounds like something a guilty man would do, doesn't it? And on September 21st, 2018, the Sacramento County Police Department announced the arrest of Roy Charles Waller as a NorCal rapist. So who is Roy Charles Waller? Who is this piece of shit? Well, I was not able to find anything in the old-timey newspapers about him growing up or any real criminal background history. At one point, I saw there was a mention of an arrest for an attempted kidnapping in the early 1990s, and this is when his rape spree started, so I'm pretty sure that that was so I'm pretty sure that he did it, but charges were never officially brought against him, and so he was let go. And remember, if you have no charges pressed against you, CODIS doesn't meet you. Now, at the time of his arrest, he's living in Benicia, California. This is just a hop and a skip from his first four attacks. We're talking like 10-minute drive, 20-minute drive away from his first attacks. And it seems as time went on, he decided he was just going to venture further away from home. And that's how he ended up going into the Sacramento area. But keep in mind, he was also in the eastern, I'm sorry, on the western part of Sacramento. So it's not like he really had to go through the Sacramento area. He was just hitting the outskirts of the metro city area. And like I said, he is working at UC Berkeley. This is about a half an hour's drive from home. He is working as a safety specialist, and he's been there for the last 25 years, meaning that he started in 1992. So he rapes a woman at knife point or gun point back in 1991, and she's young. I don't know if she was a college student at the time. She's just described as a hairstylist. But she is definitely college age, and within a year, he decides he's just going to go get a job over at the local university. Excuse me, out to no end. We're told he's part of the maintenance department. Um, I guess something to do with like working with heavy machinery or being in charge of making sure that they're safe to work with on the grounds. I'm, I'm not particularly sure. Oh, that's right, and he's married. They own a white Cadillac Escalade and a nice silver Mercedes. And he's got a nice, nice fancy house right near the water. And it's got a nice white picket fence. 
And we're told that he works on motorcycles and cars over the weekend. And he tends to a tomato garden. Isn't that nice? Well, he and his wife aren't that outgoing in the neighborhood, though, and they pretty much keep to themselves. But neighbors never notice any kind of pets or kids or other visitors at the house, so they kind of keep to themselves, but they do like the nice things. Isn't that nice for him that he gets to buy all these nice fancy things and live in this nice neighborhood with his nice wife when all of his victims are left trying to pick up the pieces and find some kind of sense of safety after what he did to them for so long? Piece of shit. Now, this serial rape case is the kind of case that absolutely validates the use of forensic genealogy, in my opinion. This guy had gotten away with over 10 rapes and assaults for the last 30 years, and he did stop, we will say that, but without searching through the family tree, how would these victims ever get their justice? He had no other prior arrest from that possible kidnapping that was back in the early 90s because there wasn't ever ever any charges that were pressed. So... As long as he never raped again or committed any other violent offense or even drug offense that would get him into the system, which could possibly be why he stopped, because he knew that CODIS existed and it was only going to get finer tuned throughout the years as far as the laws go. So let's take a look into CODIS in California, because we've never really dived into the CODIS law, and I just wanted to go over it um, in this case with a just to understand a little closely more how it works and how these criminals are able to you know circumvent the system. Thinking back to Michael Henslick, I just get pissed all over again. See, see Holly Cassano's episode. Oh, that pisses me off. But I'll give him that. At least it wasn't a violent offense until he got the, until he got the domestic assault charge against him. I'll give him that. Anyway, we're talking about this asshole here. So we're going to take a look into CODIS in California. Now, in 1998, a new state law required police to collect DNA samples from all adults convicted of a felony and to be put in a criminal database. And then in November of 2004, we have one of those propositions that we get on election day where they ask you directly, should we approve this law? And you say yes or no. It's not something that your legislator actually proposes and and signs off on, but it's something that you do as a voter. They present the voters with Proposition 69, and this is going to expand this um, original CODIS law reach. It's going to expand it to people who are arrested and charged whether or not they ended up being convicted of the crime they're they're accused of committing. So you're not getting your DNA sample taken like after your trial or your plea bargain when you get to the big house anymore. You're getting it taken right around the time that you're looking for your defense lawyer. And by 2007, only four states are actually allowing this kind of reach as far as like the types of people, the types of criminals or suspected criminals that are being ordered to be taken to, to give up their DNA. Those states are California, obviously, Louisiana, Virginia, and Texas. But this is 14 years ago, so I'm sure that a lot more of states have signed on to this. And so for Waller, he may have been picked up for this possible kidnapping in the early 90s, which we now discover when he's is when he's beginning his rape spree. But as for the courts to order the taking of his DNA, well, that was not going to come into effect for at least another 10 years. And especially in his case, because the charges were never officially filed for the kidnapping, which didn't lead to a conviction. And so therefore, no DNA was taken for any of those levels that are allowed by law. Now, Proposition 69 came into effect in 2004, and he had stopped his spree in 2006. So did he finally decide that he wasn't going to risk it anymore? Possibly. But now, just for a minute, let's look at the big picture. Do we think it's fair to order DNA samples from people who are charged with federal or state crimes 
but then get released and when the charges are dropped? Or what about people who are taken to trial and they're found not guilty? So if you're arrested and charged and then later found to be totally innocent, which of course happens all the time, we understand and that's fine. But now that we have all these people that we have to consider that are actually innocent and now the system has their DNA, is that fair? Is it right that they took your DNA in the early stages of this criminal process, criminal justice process? Because once they have it, how do you get it out of the system? And do you have a right to get it out of the system? Now, I did come across a link, at least for California, that can guide you through the process of requesting your DNA to be taken out of the system. So we know that that's at least an option, but of course there's paperwork involved. And that's something that the person, the accused or the formerly accused has to go about, has to be proactive with. It's not just that the, that the law enforcement is going to be like, oh, okay, let's just toss that DNA profile. No, they want to say, well, if we have it, we don't want to give it up. But what are the stakes for both sides here? I'm wondering. So if you're an innocent person and you're always innocent and you're never doing bad things, why would you care, right? Well, I guess the question is how you perceive Big Brother, right? Oh, you arrested me. You found out I was totally uninvolved in the crime that you're accusing me of. But before that, you took my DNA. So now it's in the system at no fault of my own. And because you screwed up and you're misguided, my privacy has been breached. And now I have to go through all this paperwork and bureaucracy to get my privacy back. I definitely see the argument that proponents against Proposition 69 present. But the flip side is that now if you are on the verge of turning to a criminal life and you just happen to be innocent of that particular crime and we take your DNA and then we have to take your DNA out, it's not there for us when we need it if you do break bad. Oh, ethics. Oh, I do miss my philosophy classes. I'm not going to lie. But let's get back to a piece of shit, Waller. Now, of course, the press wants to know what UC Berkeley has to say about all this. He's been their employee, a loyal and dependable employee for the last 25 years. He's seen and helped so many students. Gross. Well, they don't say much about this, but they do essentially say that they're just surprised and shocked that their own employee could do such a thing. And then they say, gotta go. But this guy is in a light of work that exposes him to hundreds of people and they come and go throughout the years right? New students come in, old students go out. Um, they're coming in all different shapes and sizes and genders and ethnicities. And this whole student population is finding out that one of their groundsmen on campus has been arrested raping numerous women in California back when they were just toddlers. It's, it's just insane. Now, one female student interviewed tells us, quote, it's really shocking to hear just for me as a student, First of all, that someone like this was on campus, I think it really goes to show that the issue of sexual violence and sexual harassment is very still pervasive today. And it's something that we really need to pay close attention to, unquote. So, of course, we're now worried that he could have been attacking any of the students on campus, but maybe for some reason is he still laying under the radar? Of course, the same question was asked by the press and, quote, according to the University of California Police Department and the Sacramento Police Department, there is no indication that any crimes occurred within the campus community. However, the UCPD will be reviewing any open sexual assault cases to determine if any of them might be related, unquote. So there's that. Now, it's been two years since then. Didn't Nothing came of it. So I'm thinking that he pretty much just decided he was, gonna, he was done when he was done in 2006, 
or at least when it comes to attacking people on campus or women outside of campus that go that are students there. So here we go with our common question. Do we think he could have been caught without diving into the family tree? It's actually possible. It turns out that he was one of the Toyota 4Runner owners that were interviewed back in 2007. They had determined that he wasn't close enough to the physical description because he was older than the victims reported the rapist to be. So they decided they weren't going to request a DNA sample from him at the time, thinking it was just going to be a waste of time for the lab because they did have so many samples as it was from other Toyota 4Runner owners. But they also didn't even take photos of the truck when they were at the house. And it turns out it's actually his girlfriend's house and truck. So when they pulled that information from the DMV and they went to her house, he happened to be there and they interviewed him. Crazy. Now, if those detectives had a stronger gut feeling or if there were other, if there were stronger protocols for this investigation where every single interview taken was going to request a DNA sample, if that was in place for this case, then he definitely would have been caught. But instead, we all had to wait an additional 11 years and they had to try a different tactic. But once again, thank God for forensic genealogy. Now, as a reminder, there is a statute of limitations on rape cases, although I'm sure hopefully we'll get there one day or they'll at least be extended. Um, but here we do have a man who's not only raping his victims, but also doing so at gunpoint. So this is going to be an aggravator when it comes to the charge being charges being filed, right? And this is actually going to bring his possible sentence, if he's found guilty, to life in prison, just by the fact that he had a gun pointed at his victims when he committed his crimes. So all in all, his charges go from 28 counts to 40 counts, and then up to 46 counts of kidnapping, forcible rape, oral copulation, sodomy, and foreign penetration. And I'm sure there's burglary in there somewhere for all those ATM visits. And this piece of shit decides he's going to plead not guilty, and we're going to have to go through a trial. This trial took place just this last October, just under six months ago. His defense wasn't me. Now, his attorney is going to try to argue that the victims can't visually identify him, so it must not have been him, right? Makes sense. Well, he does have a right to a fair trial and to defend himself against his accusers, so we will grant him that. But let's see if this defense flies, okay? Now, the trial takes place, like I said, last October, and the verdict comes back in November. This is going to take place in the same exact room that the victim statements were given for the crimes committed by Joseph D'Angelo, who we all know, the Golden State Killer, who, who's, who was convicted and sentenced last year, early last year. Now, part of the evidence that was included in the trial were items found in a storage locker of his that they had searched, and they found, brace yourself, handcuffs, duct tape, zip ties, masks, a book on how to pick locks, and the clincher, stolen panties from some of the victims. They also searched his computer and they found details about him stalking these women before he attacked them. He had logged their names, their appearance, their daily routines, their vehicles. He even graded them on their appearance. What a piece of shit. You want to do that at a wet t-shirt contest? Fine, go for it. That's what it's for. But you're watching a girl cross a parking lot to go get a Starbucks, and then you're going to go home and you're going to log in your little Starker spreadsheet that she's a, what, an eight, or she's a five, or a 10. What the hell? 
I guess we can't expect more from a guy like this. So I just said take it back. But this just adds to his depravity. Now, other evidence that the prosecution presents, including his include his collection of Asian pornography that shows women being bound during sex acts. Come on. Oh, my God. Now, this is enough for me. But in the interest of fairness, because we can't risk any double jeopardy here, we need the victims to testify as long as they're willing. So in the end, nine of his 11 victims do testify about the details of their attacks. And the whole time, he would never look at the victims while they were testifying on the stand. And later, he wouldn't even look at them during their victim impact statements because he's a fucking coward. As it turns out, they're able to get the girlfriend from back in the day because she did not end up marrying him. And they call her to the stand and she testifies about her relationship with him and her use of the car. And also they ask her, they ask her about the picture found from the ATM footage. And she says, that looks like him. That looks to me like it could have been him. Now, the defense attorney is Joseph Farina, and he's a piece of shit in his own right. But we have to say, again, he has asked to put food on the table. So I'll have to give him that. But he's really rough with these victims. He argues that, number one, Waller's DNA from his trash out front of his house was sneaky, so we shouldn't, so they shouldn't be able to use it. It's unethical. And number two, he says that the samples collected from the crime scenes were, were anywhere from 15 to 30 years ago, so they must be degraded in some way, which would cause false positive matches when compared to his client's DNA. But this is where it goes too far, and I get really pissed because I don't know how he lives with himself every time he cross-examines these victims. Only one victim actually does identify Waller visually in the courtroom, but he calls her a liar to her face and accuses her of pointing fingers at him only because everybody tells everybody else is pointing the finger at him because of the DNA. Farina argues with her and essentially yells at her, saying she just wants someone to pay for her attack and she doesn't care who it is. He says, you don't know him. And she says back to him, well, I don't know him, but I do know his face. Shit, yeah, girl. (laughs) Now, this piece of shit also decides that he's going to take the stand. Incredible. They do ask him about the things found in his storage locker. And he says, well, yes, I just collect weird stuff. Yes, I'm into kinky sex. I am into bondage and sex toys, but I did not rape those women. And they say, well, how can you expect the DNA? How can you explain the presence of your DNA there? And he says, quote, all I can say is I was never at these locations and I never did what I'm accused of. As far as the DNA thing, I'm not a DNA expert, unquote. So essentially he's claiming the shaggy defense, right? It wasn't me. And we're supposed to just go with that and let him off? Okay. Now we do have to go through, like I said, a whole month of this trial testimony, but it only takes two and a half hours for the jury to come back. And on November 18th, 2020, Roy Charles Waller is found guilty on 46 counts. And the piece of shit is sentenced to 897 years, baby, and no parole. Now, this is a man that I wouldn't mind living well into his hundreds, just so he could serve more time in jail than he did out of jail for all the terror and sadness that he caused to so many people. So I just want to think quickly back to our first serial rape case. I think it was episode six. And we talked about women who don't come forward to report their rapes. But look at this guy, Waller, right? This man stalked them. You would think that he would know their nature, their personality, their strengths. But he completely underestimated their will to fight back and report what he did to the police and to hold out for the justice they deserved. 
And after all, they ended up being 11 reported rapes that Waller was accused of, and nine of those women ended up testifying. But what if we whittled that down, right? Like we are saying in episode six, what if only three or four victims reported their attacks? And what if only one or two decided to actually press charges and testify? And what if he was better at cleaning up the crime scene than he was? What if he was more like the like the the two roommates in Davis, where there was little to no DNA in most of the scenes? And what if he had decided not to keep those trophies? Because after all, he had twelve years twelve years to destroy his computer hardware, ten year twelve years to get rid of whatever tchotchkes he had stolen from the house, the underwear, you know, his rape kits, essentially, you know, his all his goodies that he would take to the house with him. Of course, I mean, every case is different in its own way, but every case also sometimes feels like it is the same. If we take all of those what ifs and we apply them to this case, to Waller's case, then his sentence could have been much, much lower. We could take his 897 years and whittle them down to just 30 if all of those what ifs played into his favor. And I'm sure there's a lot of cases out there that are just like that, hypothetical, but they're just not being discovered yet. Or maybe they won't be if they're victims, if the victims in those cases don't report. So let's just go through another PSA. Never feel ashamed or never feel discouraged from reporting a rape. You are always stronger than you think you are. And you are always more loved and supported than you think you are. You might not know how many victims have come before you or how many will be after you, but you are not alone. You are loved and you are supported and you will be believed if you ever find yourself testifying on the stand. If you choose not to testify in the end, the DNA evidence can testify for you. You may not know it at the time, but you might just be one soldier of many in the army that's going to take down that piece of shit that hurt you one day. That's off my soapbox now. Sorry, (laughs) it happens. Now, defense attorney Joseph Rina, he will say later on, well, quote, it didn't matter what I did. It was a DNA case. We could not overcome the fact that his DNA was at nearly all the crime scenes, unquote. That is what I like to hear. Although you really can't take back what you did to those victims on the stand. The press does interview the jury afterwards, and we do get juror number seven um, to give us some insights into the jury room. He tells us, quote, the prosecutors, the DA, the DA, they put on such a good case and it just made our jobs a lot easier. And when they asked him about whether or not if Waller's testify, testifying on his own behalf helped or hurt his case, the juror said, quote, yeah, that really hurt him. His testimony could not prove nothing and the DNA don't lie. That was the reason why, unquote. So I have two impact statements I want to share that were given at his sentencing. The Vallejo victim tells us, quote, it's always going to be there. I've lived my half my life. I'm going to be 60 living this way. So I think this definitely does have closure. Knowing that he is not going to do it to anybody else is the most amazing feeling. I just hope to God that he feels the pain, unquote. And then our Roner Park victim, she tells us, quote, I have never been, nor will I ever be, embarrassed by what he did to me. I will never be ashamed. It is your client that should be embarrassed, Mr. Farina. He's gone. I never have to think about him for one more second of my life. And that is the greatest feeling I could ever feel. He deserves, as the prosecutor said, every single second. And I hope he lives a very, very long life from here on out. Unquote. And that is the case of the NorCal rapist victims. 
Thank you. Thank you so much for coming along with me again this week on this crazy case. You can find me at the ties that find.com. Find me on all the socials at the ties that find. I do post the associated pictures for every case on the web. And then you can also find sources and the script on my website. Please rate, review and follow. And I will see you next week. Bye.